Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled, No Outcasts Cast Out, From the Politics of Purity to the Call for Compassion, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September 3rd, 2006. Last weekend at my daughter's soccer team lunch, one mom gently reminded her daughter to remove the cheese from her Subway sandwich. It's still not kosher, Hannah laughed, but at least it's a little better. Does anyone want some extra cheese? I admired Hannah's care to follow Jewish dietary laws to keep kosher by eating only what is fit or clean. To some people, following such purity laws as a way to express your relationship with God might appear trivial. But in Mark's Gospel for this week, we see how ritual purity and holiness codes form the background context for the mission and message of Jesus. The dietary restrictions that Hannah observed comprise only a tiny part of a comprehensive and complex holiness code that regulated personal and community life for the emergent Hebrew people 3,000 years ago. By one count, there are 613 mizvot, or commandments, in the first five books of Moses. In particular, the purity laws of Leviticus chapters 11 through 26 specify in minute detail clean and unclean foods, purity rituals after childbirth or menstrual cycle, regulations for skin infections and contaminated clothing or furniture, prohibitions against contact with a human corpse or a dead animal, instructions about nocturnal emissions, laws regarding bodily discharges, agricultural guidelines about planting seeds and mating animals, and decrees about lawful sexual relationships keeping the Sabbath, forsaking idols, and even tattoos. All in all, this Levitical purity laws encompass nearly every aspect of being human. Birth, death, sex, gender, health, economics, jurisprudence, social relations, hygiene, marriage, behavior, and certainly ethnicity for Gentiles were automatically considered impure. Some of these purity laws encoded simple common sense or moral ideas far before their time that we gladly follow today, like prohibitions against incest. Others regulated hygiene and sanitation. Still others symbolized that Israel was to maintain a unique identity that differentiated its people from pagan nations. Ultimately, though, the purity laws and holiness code ritualized an important exhortation from Yahweh. In Leviticus 19, verse 2, we read, Be holy, because I, the Lord your God, am holy. So when the psalmist for this week asks, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? The proper response is that only people who are ritually clean may approach a holy God. Psalm 15, verse 1. At the center of this purity system 
both literally and symbolically, stood the temple where one performed rites of purification. Scholars debate just how much or how little ordinary first century Jews concerned themselves with maintaining ritual purity. But the Pharisees, about whom we read so much in the Gospels, certainly did. Throughout the Gospels, they repeatedly confronted Jesus because of his flagrant disregard for ritual purity. Jesus the Jew touched a leper, Mark 1.41. His disciples didn't fast, Mark 2.18. He ignored Sabbath laws, Mark 2.23. He touched a woman with a discharge and handled a corpse, Mark chapter 5. And immediately after this week's story, in Mark chapter 7, he healed two Gentiles. In the Gospel reading this week, which some scholars consider the single most important of all the purity texts, Mark recounts a clash between Jesus and the Pharisees about food purity. Why, asked the Pharisees, did Jesus' disciples eat with unclean hands? Mark includes two parenthetical explanations to his Gentile readers who otherwise might have been clueless. In Mark 7, verses 3 and 4, we read, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash, and they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Then, in an aside that we might find trivial, but his readers would have found shocking, Mark writes that, quote, Jesus thus declared all foods clean, Mark 7:19. Nor should we miss the central ac accusation in this class, clash, that the Pharisees considered Jesus and his followers as ritually unclean sinners. Given the human propensity for justifying our own selves and for scapegoating others, the Holiness Code and purity laws lent themselves to a spiritual stratification, a hierarchy between the ritually clean, who consider themselves to be close to God, and the unclean, who were shunned as impure sinners who were far from God. But instead of expressing the holiness of God, ritual purity became a means of excluding people considered dirty, polluted, or contaminated. In word and in deed, Jesus ignored, disregarded, and by some accounts even actively demolished these distinctions of ritual purity as a measure of spiritual status. In Marcus Borg's view, Jesus turned this purity system with its sharp social boundaries on its head, and in its place substituted a radically alternate social vision. The new community that Jesus announced would be characterized by interior compassion for everyone, not by external compliance to a purity code, by radical inclusivity rather than by hierarchical exclusivity, and by inward transformation rather than by outward ritual. In place of Leviticus 19 verse 2, Be holy, for I am holy, 
According to Borg, Jesus deliberately substituted Luke 6.36, Be merciful, just as I, your Father, am merciful. No outcasts, writes Gary Wills in his book, What Jesus Meant, were cast out far enough in Jesus' world to make him shun them. Not Roman collaborators, not lepers, not prostitutes, not the crazed, not the possessed. Are there people today who could possibly be considered outside God's encompassing love? In a tragic irony, of course, some Christians have considered Jews accursed, not to mention gays. I found it a humbling exercise to ask myself, what categories of outcasts do I sanctimoniously spurn as impure, unclean, dirty, contaminated, and in my mind, far from God. Maybe the mentally ill, people who have married three or four times, wealthy executives, welfare recipients, people who hold conservative political opinions, or maybe people with AIDS. How have I distorted the self-sacrificing, egalitarian love of God into self-serving exclusionary elitism? What boundaries do I wrongly build? Or what boundaries might I bravely shatter? I pray to experience what Borg calls a community shaped not by the ethos and politics of purity, but by the ethos and politics of compassion. And now for further reflection. How would you interpret Revelation chapter 14, verse 4, which pictures heaven to include 144,000 males, quote, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they kept themselves pure, end quote. Who are you tempted to exclude as impure and unclean? How do we embrace both holiness and compassion instead of choosing one or the other? What does the hierarchy or stratification of impurity look like in your community? Finally, watch the film entitled An Uncommon Kindness about the Flemish priest Father Damien de Voister who ministered to the abandoned lepers on the Hawaiian island of Molokai. For books this week, I review The Myth of a Christian Nation, How the Quest for Political Power is Destroying the Church by Greg Boyd, Grand Rapids, Zondervan, 2006, 207 pages. In April of 2004, Pastor and scholar Greg Boyd preached a controversial series of six sermons called The Cross and the Sword at his 5,000-member Woodland Hills Church in St. Paul, Minnesota. As he explains in his new book that grew out of these sermons, in those months preceding the elections, Boyd wanted to warn his congregation about what he called nationalistic and political ideology of identifying the Christian gospel with any political point of view. 
of cherished but badly mistaken convictions like the belief that America is a Christian nation, or that believers should quote-unquote take back the nation for God. No, Boyd preached, the path through politics is not the road to God. No, he would not endorse conservative candidates or announce anti-gay rallies from the pulpit. No, he would not distribute anti-abortion literature, pass out voter guides, or fly a flag in the sanctuary. Many parishioners thank Boyd for his wisdom, his bravery, and his boldness, but others were not so enamored. About a thousand people left his congregation. In his book, Boyd makes a sharp distinction between the kingdom of this world that is characterized by what he calls power over, quote-unquote, and the kingdom of God that Jesus announced, which is characterized by power under. The kingdom of power over is the realm of domination, exploitation, violence, coercion, and self-interest, whereas the kingdom of Jesus power under is one of love and self-sacrifice. The kingdom that Jesus announced is a radical and countercultural alternative, says Boyd, to every sort of worldly power. It's not merely an attempt to upgrade government to a better level. Jesus, of course, insisted that his kingdom was not of this world, John 18:36. Most Christians, until the baptism of Constantine, lived this distinction. But in Boyd's view, the developments after Constantine's conversion have constituted an unmitigated disaster for Christianity. Quote, the church of resident aliens became a horde of savage warlords. We've become intoxicated with the Constantinian, nationalistic, violent mindset of imperialistic Christendom. End quote. Many others have written similar treatises with more theological and historical nuance. Compare the books by Randall Balmer, Thy Kingdom Come, or John Meacham, American Gospel. Boyd draws liberally from the works of Yoder, William Willimon, Wink, and Hauerwas. His book is unique, though, in that he writes from within and for an explicitly conservative readership. A recent article in the New York Times, July 30, 2006, featured the controversy at Boyd and his church and suggested possible broader trends in conservative evangelical churches. We can only hope so. Gregory Boyd, The Myth of a Christian Nation For film this week, I reviewed Dandelion from the year 2004. The case of this DVD boasts five film festival awards and the promise of quote-unquote redemption for its characters, but I was left wondering why on both counts. There are at least nine suicide scenes in this film, mainly imagined, but one of which is very real. Teenager Mason grows up in a horribly dysfunctional family where dinners are characterized by a raging father, Luke, a people-pleasing, pill-popping, and alcoholic mother, Lila, and a crazy uncle, Bobby, who thinks that World War II was raging 
and who dies in an asylum. A tragic accident strikes that feeds on their dysfunction. Enter a young girl named Danny, whose mom is a passive-aggressive drifter single parent. Danny enjoys drugs, alcohol, teenage sex, and admits that she, quote, has a thing for things that aren't good for me, end quote. But now put Danny and Mason in a lush meadow with a brilliant blue sky, undulating grass in an idyllic pond, and what do you get? Redemption? No. On an improbable fishing trip with his son, Mason, Father Luke described his every character in this film. Quote, you wake up one day and nothing's the way it's supposed to be, so you try to keep going, taking down the people you love the most right with you. And for some reason, you can't admit that until you've already lost them. Dandelion, from the year 2004. And finally, for poetry this week, we've posted a poem by Anna Akhmatova, who lived from 1889 to 1966. The title of her poem is, I Taught Myself to Live Simply. I taught myself to live simply and wisely, to look at the sky and pray to God, and to wander long before evening to tire my superfluous worries. When the burdocks rustle in the ravine and the yellow-red rowanberry cluster droops, I compose happy verses about life's decay, decay and beauty. I come back. The fluffy cat licks my palm, purrs so sweetly, and the fire flares bright on the sawmill turret by the lake. Only the cry of a stork landing on the roof occasionally breaks the silence. If you knock at my door, I may not even hear. Anna Akhmatova, I taught myself to live simply. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 3rd, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.